The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Our guest today, Shelley Tegelski, is a self-care activist and founder of the global grassroots mutual aid organization, Pandemic of Love. Her work has been featured in over 100 media outlets, including CNN, CBS, This Morning, The Kelly Clarkson Show, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and I'm running out of breath, so we'll just have to stop there. Her new (laughs) book is Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. And you can read her essay, Show Up for Yourself, online at spiritualityhealth.com. Shelly Tegelski, welcome to Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Rami. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for this platform. Well, you are welcome. And, and I want to sort of throw you a curveball. I don't think I've ever done this before. <laughs> but before we jump into the book, we were talking before we started about your love of driving, even cross-country. And <laughs> I, I, you, know, you said this really interesting thing about you know, if you're curious about people, this is the way to find out what, you know, what's, what, it, what they're like, I guess. So, so tell yeah. us why you like doing this and what you've learned from doing it. Yeah. Well, so I've always loved taking road trips. And even um, when I got married, my husband and I, our honeymoon was actually a road trip through the Southwestern United States. My son got accustomed to taking road trips and renting RVs and and just really getting to know this country in in, a, in an incredibly intimate way. I love taking road trips even more now that the country is in this extremely polarized state because I'm really curious about how people arrive at their, you know, destination, their their thought process, their conditioning, the lens with which they decide to view the world with, right? And I also know that these lenses can be switched out and that conditioning can be removed through a lot of the work that I do and the work that I do with different types of people. So I really try to immerse myself as much as I can, sometimes in very uncomfortable spaces, and have conversations that would probably make most people uncomfortable to have because you're having conversations with people that think very differently than you. 
but they're also coming from very different experiences. And I think that when we can sort of just listen with curiosity, without judgment, which can be very difficult to do, I understand, especially when what the person is saying is somewhat triggering or can be traumatizing in some way or re-traumatizing. If we know how to kind of hold that space and sit with discomfort and just kind of rest in that state for a little bit, I think we can, you know, really start to understand what makes people tick, especially here in this country, and how we can start to really create a shift that's meaningful and start to create real connections and bridge these divides that we keep talking about. Everybody's talking about the divide, but not a lot of people are talking about how we build that bridge between it. Well, I mean, that's fascinating. I, you and I are must be very different people psychologically. I mean, when I, <laughs> when, when I, you know, I'm in that kind of situation, I'm listening, but I'm praying, please don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. <laughs> you know, it's like I figure at any moment they're going to pull out their concealed weapon and, you know, just sort of eliminate one more Jew from the planet in the name of their Jewish God. But maybe that's just the kind of people I run into. Who knows? Do you, do you ever think? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. I'm being, you know, obviously facetious. But do you ever get a sense they're listening themselves, that they're curious about you? Or is it more or less? Sometimes. Sometimes I get that sense. I always try to leave the conversation with at least one thing that we have in common. So even if it's like, oh, we both like cheese or, oh, we, you know, both, you know, believe in X or Y or Z, you know, like I try to kind of just boil it down to something that we have in common so we can leave the conversation in such a way that, um, we can recognize that we're not that different, that there's at least one thing that, that, that we can recognize that there's like this, these two circles can actually intersect uh, and there could be some sort of an overlap somewhere as different as we may be. So you really should contact the craft people and, and offer to create a commercial for them. America come together over cheese. You know, that, that, <laughs> might, that might work though. I think we'd end up fighting you know, someone will say, well, it's American cheese is the only real cheese. And someone else, you know, yeah. would say, no, it's brie. And they say, oh, you New Yorker. And that and that's no good. So we're going to have to stop with the cheese because I don't know where that is going. And go back to your book or pick up the book. The book is Sit Down sure. to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. So I love a book that doesn't tease but one that just tells you what the deal is right up front. I don't want to have to guess at where you're coming from. And, and your book is very open, very honest. In the opening line of, of Sit Down to Rise Up, you write, quote, I want to share the secret of life with you. So right away, I'm <laughs> like, wow, the secret of life. This is cool. I usually have to pay a lot to learn that. And then you tell me, you say, the secret of life is this, show up. Show up yeah. for yourself and others, show up physically to create sacred spaces, show up consistently, show up even, other, even when others don't show up. Show up in a way that makes every person feel held. Show up in a way that makes you feel held by others. Now, at the risk of sounding 
more dumb than I normally sound. Tell us what you mean by showing up. Sure. Well, I mean, I literally mean show up. I mean that when you experience an emotion, an emotion such as outrage or sadness, emotions that we've been taught to label as bad or negative, right? In this kind of good vibes only uh, culture that we're, we're living in with this sometimes toxic positivity that exists. We tend to do the exact opposite of showing up. We either sort of, you know, get to this place of flight, flight, freeze of just kind of like not doing anything, or we run like hell the other way because we're like, we can't, this is too uncomfortable, or I don't know what to do, or this problem is too big for me to fix. And we, we just discount the, the huge, you know, ability to be able to just by simply being there, just by simply being present, just by simply doing something extremely small, but doing that extremely small thing consistently that we can create this huge shift in each other, in our communities, in ourselves. You know, we just think that we always have to do things in big lofty ways. And I sometimes feel like, you know, it's, and we learn this also, by the way, in, in, in Judaism, you know, you think about like what a Shiva is, right? When somebody dies and it's, it's, it's a big mitzvah, it's a good deed to be able to go and, you know, pay your respects after somebody dies. You have that seven day window where you need to show up. And very rarely, if ever, do you have words that can ease the pain, the loss, the grief, make up for this loss that somebody is feeling, right? But simply by just showing up and being there, you are basically speaking in volumes without saying a word. And so if we can apply that to sort of all of these really difficult things that we're going through, not just on a personal level, but also in the world, right? All of these daunting problems that seem too large to fix. If we can sort of apply this concept to use now a Buddhist proverb, you know, that we should tend to the areas of the garden that we can reach and only the, area, the, 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 the points of the garden that we can reach. Stop looking at other people's garden. Stop looking at the areas you can't reach. Just focus on what's in front of you and show up for that. Make that the most beautiful, you know, just sow those seeds and, and see what can blossom. And if we each just kind of focus on that and showing up for our own garden, so to speak, we can really create huge shifts in the world. So, I mean, since you're, you're quoting first from Judaism and then, and then Buddhism, let's, let's go back to Judaism for a second. I mean, it's like <laughs> Rabbi Hillel's statement, you know, if, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? So showing up for right. myself. But if I'm only for myself, what am I? So showing up for others. And then he says, Correct. and if not, now when? You have to do this continually. But how yes. does that play into the, or tell me what you mean by toxic positivity? Sure. Well, I think, you know, in our, in our Western culture, we sort of have just subscribed or ascribed, you know, that, that emotions are good or bad, right? And in the human experience, there are over 33,000 emotions, and they're neither good nor bad. And we know from a physics perspective, we know when we read the Torah, for example, that 
without darkness, there can't be light, right? We, we can't appreciate the light without the darkness. And so the same goes with emotions. What is happiness if you don't really know sadness, right? right. And so for every sort of good, quote unquote, emotion, there's the opposite of that emotion, the opposite side of the coin. And for whatever reason in our culture, we just want to look for the five ways to be happy and the 10 ways to feel at ease and, you know, all of these kind of quick fixes and to suppress everything else that might be coming up for us, which very well may be the pathway to true happiness, like actually going through the darkness and to th through sadness and working through those really challenging and tough emotions we know is the way, it's the path to actually get to a better place. And yet in our culture, we're telling people, no, don't feel that. Like, let's just focus on positivity. You can manifest positivity by just thinking positive thoughts all day. Well, it's okay to also sit with your negative thoughts and identify them and sit with your sadness and loss and grief and, and, you know, anger and rage and all of these other things that are really part of the whole human experience. Yeah, we had, and maybe we still do, we have this notion of, of what Rhonda Byrne called the secret, uh, which yeah. is manifesting. You can manifest your own reality. You can manifest whatever it is you want. And of course, nobody wants to manifest negativity. So the, the, the assumption is that if you're not happy, it's really your fault, as if you could control mm. that, that emotion. And so what's toxic, and this is a question, it seems to me what you're saying is what's toxic is that we're denying ourselves the full range of our emotions because we're only allowing for the happy ones. Right. And that we can't possibly be truly happy without working through and suppressing the negative emotions. Right. Right, right. Which brings me to, to a subject you, you deal with in the book at length, which is the notion of agency. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to quote you back to yourself. And you write that, that people are independent and self-governing. They mm -hmm. are capable of voluntarily analyzing their knowledge, setting intentions or goals, making plans and acting on them. In the simplest terms, you write, this can be synonymous with free will. So how free is our free will. What, what does that mean? I mean, I, I don't, I think people just sure. use it, but I'm not sure how free my free will really is. <laughs> well, so agency, you know, everybody has agency, but not everybody has a sense of agency. So I do also make that distinction in the book. Right. And so free will, when we know that we have free will, when we're conscious, when we're awakened to our free will, we understand how the choices that are born from this free will will affect other people, other people in our circles of influence, other people in our communities, and even other people that may indirectly be affected. And it means that we have the ability to be reflective and to have awareness and, and be introspective about the actions that we're taking. That's what it means to have a sense of that agency and to really have control so to speak, over that agency, to be able to just kind of pause and be reflective and really choose to respond over react to things, right? So, so responding versus reacting. 
Right. Now, now I know, because I've had this conversation with other people, I know that somebody listening is going to say, well, that is white privilege speaking. That, that mm. you know, that may be true for a certain class of white people, but it certainly isn't true for, and then fill in your, whatever group you want to fill in, people of color one way or another. So do you ever run into that, that people say, well, that sounds good if you're white, but not mm. so not so true if you're not? I, to be honest with you, I don't. I think I'm, you know, I, I am somebody who really immerses myself in doing the work. I actually teach, um, I teach an anti-racism or a prerequisite to anti-racism course with um, author, meditation teacher who is uh, Black and gay, Justin Michael Williams. And we co-teach, you know, this, this really incredible workshop called the Liberation Experience, which is really meant to bring together people from the BIPOC community, as well as white people who have, uh, yes, a lot of privilege to actually bring them together and have very difficult conversation in safe spaces. So I, I don't know that I would agree with that. I think I would challenge whoever would say that to me and say, no, every single person, I don't care what color skin you have, what culture you're from or where you were born. You know, you could be born in a war-torn country. You could be a refugee who is fleeing a situation. You could be, you know, you could have been in 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 a in a concentration camp, right? In 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 the in the nineteen forties. The reality is is that even then, even then, we have the ability to choose how we want to respond to a situation that's the only thing that we can control sometimes in our life is to have agency over ourselves and over our responses. And, and there's a whole, you know, logotherapy is like an entire uh, yeah, sect. That's what I was going to say, exactly. Victor Frankl. Right, yes. Right. Do you have that history in your family? Yes, Holocaust? I do. It's in the first, actually in the, in the first chapter, I talk a lot about Victor there. Frankl and how much his book has really kind of like I had this aha moment when I was in a philosophy class in undergrad. And, uh, and it was the first time that I, I read about his work and that I read his books. And I, I learned about, you know, logotherapy and I learned about just kind of reframing the way that I think about things. And so that, that really was a very big foundation for a lot of the, the subsequent work that I would engage in for, for, you know, now over uh, two and a half decades. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26 at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Right. So I, I know it's in the book, but I, I was, I really meant more personally, like grandparents or, or great grandparents. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't understand. No. So yeah. my family is Sephardic. My family um, on my so father's side. Um, You're going to have to explain that. Yeah. So, so a Sephardic Jew is somebody that ha- comes from you know, Middle Eastern countries, North Africa. So, you know, Morocco, from Iran, Iraq, uh, Libya, Egypt, et cetera. 
my on my father's side of the family, I actually am the 19th generation born in Jerusalem from the Inquisition. We can actually trace it back. Our family's history and lineage is in the Diaspora Museum, which is in Tel Aviv. And my mother's side of the family, very different. I'm a, you know, a Sabra on my mother's side of the family. I, my mother was airlifted into Israel in 1949 and to Jerusalem from Iraq, from Baghdad, one of 17 children. Well, they were allowed to take one suitcase per family. And, and basically, my mother had to live in a refugee camp for in, in, right outside of Jerusalem until her family was resettled in a neighborhood in Jerusalem. So they were expelled from Iraq. They were expelled. They were told that we cannot guarantee your safety if you stay. And El Al, you know, basically El Al planes came in in the middle of the night. There were six planes and they took out whoever wanted to get on them. Wow. So when you write about, uh, in in your book, when you write about your grandmother's path is the way you refer to it. And and Mm. you say that her path was dictated by her circumstances, the circumstances of her time. But you marvel, uh, maybe that's too strong a word, but you're impressed by her ability to, what, rise above that? Well, I, mean, I, mean, I, I do You also say, actually, I, I may be yeah. misrepresenting, because you say that she had, you recognize her inability to understand that she was worth more than she was yes. told she was worth. So she didn't Correct. have agency. She did. Or she well, did, but she didn't have a sense of agency. She did, right. But she didn't have a sense of agency because she had so many different conditionings that she couldn't break through. She didn't have the tools to do so. She certainly also was, you know, surrounded by by a culture, by, you know, a narrative, certainly by an interpretation of the religion that she was practicing, right? that told her like, this is, this is essentially your lot in life and this is who you are and this is the box that you must live in. But what was really interesting about my, my grandmother is that, you know, in it, almost like a sacrificial way, right? Now that she was out of Baghdad, out of Iraq and in, in a country that was more modern, that offered more opportunities to, especially to her daughters, she was able to see that, okay, well, you know, maybe too late for me to actually, you know, kind of make different decisions about my life, but it is not too late for me to support and try to make sure that my daughters can have different opportunities that are available to them and, and, and help them make choices that were very different than the choices I was or choices that I wasn't allowed to make. For example, something as simple as, which isn't very simple, but like, you know, the fact that my mother was able to choose who she married was something that was not possible for my older aunts that were born and born in Iraq, but also, you know, kind of came of age when they were of marrying age in Iraq. They were essentially married off, not always to people that they wanted to marry more often than not. And so my mother was really, you know, just simply by the fact that she was born in a certain pecking order, you know, that she was the last female that was born in the family. And there were other males that were born after her, but just simply because she was two years old when she was brought in, she was able to be the first in the family, the first female in the family to graduate from high school, 
the first that was totally literate and that was able to, you know, learn to drive, pick her husband, get a job, you know. And so obviously all of those experiences were a, a huge factor in the way that I was raised and the way that my brothers were raised. And yet from reading the book, I mean, all this makes perfect sense. But then there seems to be, maybe transformation is too strong, but there seems to be some breakthrough that Mm. takes you out of your family narrative through meditation. Is that, am I simplifying it too much? Because you you say, you know, (laughs) meditation, you know, plays the central role in your life, understanding your your true nature. And I'm wondering how Mm. that plays into this notion of, of sense of agency. Well, so the way I define meditation is I use one of my favorite words, which is, you know, in in Sanskrit, uh, which is gom, G-O-M. And gom loosely defined means meditation. And when you really like understand what it means in its language, it's not just meditation, it's familiarization. And so when I say, you know, that meditation sort of was the tool that I was able to use to, to really just, you know, become this version of myself, right. The, what I, what I would say a better version of myself, right. Or a person that shows up or has more presence or is more self-aware it's because I was able to familiarize myself, even with the darkest corners of my mind. And I was able to really delve into, um, some, some really, you know, traumatic events that, that I had to go through throughout my life, not just as a child, but also, you know, in, in early adulthood. And to actually, again, learn to sit with that discomfort. We're back to traveling across the country now, right? It's the same thing. Learn to sit with discomfort, learn not to run away from it, learn to actually address it, and then use that perceived weakness to actually be a strength and to be um, a, a tool that I could use from a place of vulnerability to connect with other people in a very empathetic way. But also with yourself, it sounds like, that you can... Absolutely. You can be curious about the, the, I don't know, the dark side of yourself, the parts of yourself that yeah. you're struggling with. And then I guess, you know, you come to some mutual connection with your, you know, with your multiple aspects of yourself. Maybe, maybe you bond over cheese. Well, I'm not sure. How that yeah. Works. Well, I mean, but I'll say this, right. I, as it pertains to agency, the way that meditation has literally helped me to, and the practice that I've had and cultivated uh, specifically loving kindness meditation, which is basically a practice that helps to expand your, comp- your, your compassion for other beings, for all sentient beings on this planet, even the people that you have great difficulty with your your life, whether they're known to you or not personally known to you, right? And for me, the, the most tangible example that I can give you is that, you know, I am able to self-identify, be self-aware as to like, what is it that I'm really feeling in this moment as a response to something that is occurring in this world? And then I, I rest in that and I'm not judgmental. I'm curious about why I'm feeling this way. So I investigate that and I think, okay, why am I feeling this way? I'm fearful or I'm angry or I'm outraged or I'm sad. Why do I feel this way? Let me, let me nurture that. Let me define more clearly why I'm feeling that. And for many people, it kind of ends there, right? 
the 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 exploration this this kind of excavation if you will ends at that at that point because you have the answers that you need but for me it always kind of like goes a step further in terms of connecting it with agency it's the ability to then say okay so i'm feeling angry i'm feeling outraged i'm really pissed off about what's happening in this world politically or you know socially etc what am i going to do about it that's the next question what can i do about it and I always ask the follow-up question, which is, and how do I come from a place of love? How do I come from a place of love? Because if I only ask, what am I going to do about it? The answer sometimes may be not necessarily from a place of love, right? It could be very reactionary. So asking that follow-up question is really important because it allows me to then pause and really think about the way that I want to show up in the world and the way that I want my response to be really steeped in I think the purest form of, you know, spirituality and godliness that can be, which is love. Absolutely. You know, there's a whole part of your book that is just way beyond the time that we have, not only the time we have left, but probably just in general, the time that we have, which is about creating a mutual aid network. And I I just wanted Mm -hmm. to, if you could say something very brief about that, and then I, I encourage people to look at the book because you really do walk people through creating one for themselves. You want to just talk about that very briefly, and then I want to ask you one last thing. Sure. So mutual aid in its simplest form is simply just, you know, a community of care, a safety net, if you will, where every single person that's in that kind of closed network has the ability to offer something and that every single person also has something that they need. And in a very formalized way, the people that are in this community are able to share their needs and share what they can offer. And then there's this beautiful redistribution of wealth that happens within that. And when I say wealth, I don't mean just money. I mean all sorts of wealth, right? People have extra time. They have extra space. They have an abundance of energy. There's just so many ways that that, that we can show up for each other and creating this kind of formalized network of mutual aid allows for us to do that in a way that also helps to remove the most difficult thing sometimes for people, which is the need to ask for help. Because a lot of people have great difficulty with that. So mutual aid helps to sort of remove some of those obstacles as well. Right. And, and you do this great job in the book of, of walking us through how to set that up. You also... I mean, the book is filled with practical exercises and things to do. One of them that I thought was very simple, but not at all simplistic, is this exercise you adapted from your teacher. I guess he was your teacher, Ladro mm-hmm. Rinsler. Mm-hmm. It's an exercise you do every morning. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, if only um, for today, sort of identifying yes. my intention. Yeah, right. So you want to just walk us through that and then to bring sure. it to a close. Well, so every morning I wake up and I, you know, kind of don't immediately grab my phone. I pause for a moment to just reflect, to be grateful that I'm I'm here for another moment. And then I ask myself a question of like, what intention do I want to cultivate more of in my life today? How do I want to show up today in the world? And whatever word comes up for me, sometimes it's, you know, patience, it can be kindness, it can be balance or ease or happiness 
words that can sometimes feel very abstract and very unattainable sometimes, right? And so I essentially just kind of walk myself through the entire day, you know, and I use the mantra, if only for today. So if only for today, if let's say my word was kindness, if only for today, I was going to show up with more kindness in my life as it pertained to blank, meaning anything that I'm doing that day, what would that look like? So as it pertains to my commute, as it pertains to my conversation with my husband, as it pertains to the way that I am on the phone with my mother or my yoga practice or really anything, you know, and I try to like infuse that intention in a very tangible way into all the areas of my life throughout the day. And, and the day is done and I reflect back on like, okay, well, was I kind in that situation? You know, and I really like kind of go through almost like in a slideshow, like all of the even most mundane things that happened to me that sometimes I applaud myself and I think, wow, I really did a good job at that today. And sometimes I think, oh, I really did a crappy job. I did not do a good job at that today. But in any event, I always remind myself that it's if only for today tomorrow is another day and tomorrow could be the same intention. It could be another intention. But what happens is that it allows me to center my life around an intention as opposed to centering it around a goal or centering around a to-do list or centering it, you know, around sort of just very robotic, sometimes, you know, almost very autopilot type of things that, that, that carry us throughout the day. And that's how life kind of passes us by. So I try to be much more intentional with even the things that are on my to-do list. So, you know, people are listening and going, what was her intention for today? So I don't know if you <laughs> want to share that, but sure. inquiring so minds my, want to know. Yeah, my intention for today, and it has actually been my intention for this month because I'm in the middle of this book launch, is really balance. You know, I'm really seeking uh, balance because I have to remind myself that I need to um, allow myself to take a few steps back as well and to reinvest in myself to, you know, make sure that I'm tending to myself, not just to other people, and that in an effort to do so, I can show up more fully for conversations with lovely people like you. Well, thank you for that. And hopefully at the end of the day, which is not too far away, you can applaud yourself for the day. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Our guest today, Shelley Tegelski, is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. You can learn more about her work at www.shellytegelski.com. Shelley, thanks so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. 
Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.